is a nice sound. Yeah. No rubbing your teeth against the microphone. Okay. It's against the rules. Okay. And the law. Okay. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan and my co-host Christine. And today we are here with Dan Gilbert of Tall Dog Electronics, but not Productions. Is that right? Yes. The, yeah. Yeah. You can't just nod. You have to. You have to. Right. I know they can't see me. Yeah. That's right. Right. Um, Dan is our first guest interview that's happening in person. That's right. Which is that's exciting. Right. Yeah. It's that's, an honor. So we're, we're bringing you here today, live and in person, for an exciting announcement about this thing called the Tiny NES, which I believe acronym expands into the Tiny Nostalgia Evocation Square. So Dan, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. My name's Dan Gilbert. I'm the founder of Tall Dog Electronics, which at the moment is just me, but it's a company that I started, I don't know, roughly five or six years ago to do mostly hardware. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I do, I do a lot of work with open source hardware. So prior to the thing we're talking about, you've done open hardware in like other categories, right? Mostly in terms of music, right? You want to explain what that is? Yeah. So you know, sort of my first exposure to open source in the world of electronics hardware has to do with synthesizers and um, specifically Eurorack synthesizers. I started off making Eurorack modules that were based on open source designs. And those are basically like plug and play, like modular things that let somebody who's an advanced audio person be able to put together basically kind of the setup they need? You don't have to be particularly advanced. They're a little more intimidating than the kind of synthesizer you'd think of with a keyboard in front of it. Um, so this is the world of modular synthesizers, which has, you know, been around for 50 plus years. But yes, you're right. So all of the all of the sorts of circuits and parts of a synthesizer that would be inside of a keyboard synth are instead individual modules that you then patch together as the performer. So it does, it does require a little bit more knowledge about what's going on, but there's a lot more that you can sort of mess around with. And it's very customizable. Very customizable. So whatever your needs are. And I would imagine that also makes it a lot easier to have your equipment grow with you as you develop more skills too. Very much. Everyone who you know uses these kinds of things has essentially a, a unique instrument mm -hmm. that may be manufactured primarily by the same company, but you know they might have two dozen modules that are all made by different companies. So it's a cool hardware space. It's pretty accessible and easy to jump into. And, it, you know, there's a whole range of companies that operate in the space from individuals sort of like me to, you know, very, very big companies. But it's still a pretty, what's the right word for it? It's a, it's pretty specialized. Mm -hmm. So um, niche. niche. Yes, that's the right word. So as a result, the market isn't enormous, um, and and I wouldn't say that competition is particularly fierce. There's a lot of it, but it tends to be a reasonably friendly space. So, Dan, what is the Tiny NES? The Tiny NES is a small hardware project that I started on, uh, gosh, a number of years ago, and it sat dormant for pretty long stretches of time. 
uh, some of which had to do with COVID and, you know, other things had to do with the fact that it started really as me just messing around with something and then kind of grew into something that seemed like something other people might want. In essence, Tiny NES is a working Nintendo Entertainment System compatible console that is not an emulator or it's not a software implementation. It's not a FPGA implementation. Mm -hmm. It uses two of the original chips that the NES used back when it was made. Everything else that is part of the circuit is modern hardware. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to the original circuit of original Famicoms and Nintendos. It's not exactly the same. It has some key differences. And all of the components that are used, including the board, are all modern available hardware, except for those two core chips that it, that it requires. Did we say that this is a crowdfunding campaign on CrowdSupply yet? No. This is a crowdfunding campaign on CrowdSupply. Mm-hmm. So Google CrowdSupply and you'll find it. Um, mm-hmm. You can also go to tinynes.com. That will point you right to the CrowdSupply yeah. page. Um, cool. And it's open hardware. It is open hardware. Yep. So at the end of the campaign, all of the designs, mechanical, electrical, components, bill of materials, everything is licensed CC by SA. So it's free to use and modify. So summary, I can take it, I can pop in my cu- my cartridge and my con- old school controllers, and I can actually play this thing. But if I wanted to take it and modify, change up how things are, I'm legally able to do that and technically able to do that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can even do it for commercial purposes. The only requirement is that any changes you make are under the same license. So are, so it remains open source and you just have to give credit. Yeah. Wait, what does the NES stand for in it? Right. So NES, well, you you came up with this you name. The, well, we workshopped this name. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. This was a, I this came was up a team with nostalgia. effort. This was a team effort. <laughs> I came up with the name Tiny NES, but in terms of backroniming it to something the tiny nostalgia evocation square that's right mm-hmm. is its is its technical name or the tiny nostalgia evoking square is mm-hmm. a nice yeah you can choose however you want to evo- yeah evoke How, however you want to evoke the evoking yes that's however right. you want to backronym that you can but um, what is it right why, why would i want one right so in uh 1983 four depending on whether you're in japan or the united states Nintendo released the Nintendo Entertainment System, or in Japan, it was the Famicom, which are different products, but but very, very similar on the inside, which was a video game system. It was almost exactly as old as I am. Um, it was definitely my first introduction to video games. And it played games that were on cartridges with, you know, game code stored in ROM. And you'd plug those in sort of in the US, it's sort of like a VCR. And... Uh, and yeah, you hooked it up to your TV and it was, you just play games. It was one of the first very, very popular video game consoles in the United States. So mm-hmm. mechanically, how does the tiny NES compare to that? Right. So as far as plugging in games. <laughs> right. So a, num- a number of years ago, I ran into a factory schematic of the original Famicom console. Fam- Famicom stands for family computer. And it's just what the Nintendo Entertainment System was called in Japan. It did different marketing and it looked different. So I so I came across one of these factory schematics and um, it was interesting. I was I was curious when I found it and kind of on a whim, I, I wanted I decided I was going to build one. At the time, this was probably four or five years ago. 
I had already been making circuit boards for a while. I have no engineering background in school. So the whole process of running a hardware company has been an opportunity to, to teach myself and to explore a lot of what I don't know already. You know, I came into doing this with not a whole lot of knowledge, but with a fair amount of interest in, in what was going on. So so I'm self-taught. So things like like coming across a schematic and wanting to understand how it works and if I can build it myself are were the kind of things that I was into at the time. And I noticed that the component count was reasonably low. And gosh, it, I mean, it was it's one of my favorite memories of being a little kid was like playing a Nintendo over at the neighbor's house. So the idea of building one myself was really cool. So you saw a schematic, but you made your own thing. But what does that mean, right? Like if you saw a schematic, were you just copying it? First of all, this is not an emulated Nintendo entertainment system type thing. It's not a FPGA. This is using like real legit hardware, like the 6502 processor chips and stuff like that. Yeah. But if it's using like the 6502 chips and stuff like that, like what is there to do? Like what did you do and and how did you design it? Like what software did you use and et cetera? Good questions. So originally it was just a copy. You know, the the factory schematic that I had was not perfect. It had some mistakes in it. Also, over the years, there have been many different iterations of the Nintendo Entertainment System that have been released, and each one uses a slightly different circuit. This just happens to be one. All the writing is in not English. Um, It's quite old, and I, I don't know specifically what model it was going for because it doesn't have that labeled on it but just know? having having a 6502 chip does not automatically give you a nintendo entertainment system no, type thing right no no so the nes was based around a 6502 like processor so it doesn't run a generic 6502 so the, that was a very popular chip in the 80s right like it was oh yeah like oh, the 64 pl- like all yep. sorts of electronic devices basically the 6502 platform and and architecture was was very popular in those days so Nintendo and their manufacturing partners and design partners modified a 6502 a little bit, and they also added some custom hardware, namely for audio capabilities. So it is not drop-in compatible with a 6502. Internally, it works a lot like one. So what this is, is this? you're right that this is not an emulator. It's not a modern processor that's running code to sort of pretend to be a different processor. That's what most of these things try to do, right? They're just kind of like faking it, right? Yeah. This isn't the first system that that has been built this way, but as far as I know, it's one of the one of the first few that's released as an open source design and is being offered as a manufactured product so that you don't need to build one yourself mm-hmm. if and, you want one. And do you um, use open source tools to build this? Uh partially, but no. My primary design tools uh, is eagle actually i'm a little bit surprised because i thought yeah. that you did this in freecad i did not no so for, so first of all freecad is more of a competitor to things like solidworks or rhino or mm-hmm. fusion it's for a more mechanical mm-hmm. design so in the world of circuit board design schematic capture layout there's a very popular and very good package called KiCad mm. um, that is open source and i've started to use it some but my history is really with Eagle. 
Back in the day, it was it was owned by a different company. I mean, back in the day. Several years ago, it was owned by a different company. In the tech world, several years ago was back in the day. Is a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, I believe it was a German company. And they were very, even though it was not open source, they were very hobbyist friendly. They offered a version that was very complete, but limited just in the size of the board you could make. And there were a lot of available libraries and tools for working with it. So as someone who was just getting into it, Eagle seemed like a good place to start. Several years after that, Autodesk bought it. They did a whole lot of development work on it, and they also increased the price quite dramatically. And now I believe they've bundled pretty much everything that Eagle does into Fusion 360, which is not something I'm thrilled about. Um, so I am looking into moving to KiCad. Okay. Um, but at this point, I do almost all of my work in Eagle. Okay. Um, I still I still really like Eagle but it's not an open source package. But but just to be clear, the the schematics that you did build are freely licensed, so somebody can take the design that you put together and change and modify the way that it works? Certainly, yeah. You're releasing the specs. Where yep. can people get that? If they go to tinynes.com, mm-hmm. once the campaign is finished, mm-hmm. there will be a link to a GitHub that contains everything. Excellent. Okay. So any piece of hardware is eventually going to break down in mm. some way, right? So how does this open source design help preserve computing history, given that limitation? I really appreciate that mission of preserving older technology. Nintendo manufactured a lot of systems. There's a lot out there. They're all going on 40 years old. Hugely culturally influential. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone I know who's my age roughly grew up playing Nintendo. You know, and these things do decay. Like, it, it, it's nice to be able to explore how these things worked. It's nice to be able to play these games the way they were originally made. I mean, th- this is a this is an area where there has been a lot of aftermarket work done. There, there's, a, there's a lot of Nintendo emulation. There's a lot of even taking photographs of these core chips dies and breaking down exactly what all the gates are, where, mm-hmm. you know, how, th- how they work in detail. There's one that, um, that even just scanned the 6502 chip and it just runs in your browser. Yep. Right? Like yeah. Real time. It's, very, it's mm-hmm. very, very impressive. So there is a lot of documentation out there. This project, I mean, for me, like I talked about, it started a little bit more as just my own curiosity and wanting to do a design project, a hardware design project, almost as and make a nice object, make something that's that's appealing and not prohibitively expensive and easy to manufacture and satisfying just as a device, Mm -hmm. as a physical device. But it's turned into something that also incorporates the idea of preservation Mm -hmm. because the more that this stuff is out there and is available for people to dive into, understand and use and modify, the more that this kind of information isn't lost or, or needs to be reinvented. And I imagine that there are more people with stacks of old cartridges in their attic that would still work if you had a working system than there are people who have working NES systems. Probably. They made, I mean, the Nintendo Entertainment System was a enormous success, at least in the U.S. and I, I think in Japan, too. It was released all over the world, but specifically in the U.S. it was very, very successful. And so there are a lot of systems around. There's a lot of not very well working systems around Mm -hmm. but they are somewhat available but 40 year old hardware is starting to 
I'll show its age a little bit. 40-year-old wires are starting to fray. Yeah, corrosion creeps in and into attics. And... <laughs> there, there's something interesting about it also in that since the Nintendo Entertainment System slash Famicom were so influential, that not only do they become cultural kind of landmarks and milestones, they even become something that's you know studied. It really is a part of computing history. So you and I recently played the game... Uh, Nova the Squirrel, which is an open source game. So you can even yep. play open source games on this. It's not doesn't have to just be proprietary games. That's uh, true. You're going to have a slightly harder time playing it on this, but not because of the system itself, but because this plays cartridges. Mm-hmm. This isn't an emulator. So, so you so have to get Nova the Squirrel onto a cartridge. You do, somehow. Well, yeah. they're, they're, uh, you can put them on, uh, on oh, your yeah. own cartridge. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And then there's also a cartridge that like loads allows you to yep. load roms right onto it right Correct. yep we were using the everdrive right which allows you to put any code that you want onto an sd card mm-hmm. that goes into a little cartridge that has an sd card slot and then to the to the console it just looks like any other game yeah mm-hmm. but for for a long time there were a whole lot of games that were just disappearing from history and actually mm-hmm. it's still the case if it weren't for the I mean, world of like basically right. the, as you called it the aftermarket basically community run efforts to keep these things alive yes Yep. And the the emulator scene is something that I've, I haven't personally been a part of um, in terms of a developer, but it's something that I've followed for a very long time because I've always been into this idea of being able to play the games that I grew up with playing mm-hmm. at my neighbors. You know, so this, this grew out of that fascination, but it's different from an emulator in that as someone who's not a full-time software developer and is much more interested in physical objects and sort of the elegance of a particular circuit, you know, it's it's easy to get something that emulates games. And in fact, a few years ago, Nintendo even released, what is it called? The NES Classic? NES yeah. Mini? Yeah. They, and, um, and it, which itself actually runs a GNU Linux-based operating system. It does, yep. Inside of this little microcontroller inside of this case. So they didn't even actually make a real... So this thing's like a real one, like at Nintendo Entertainment System or Famicom, as in terms of uses the chips yeah it has like you plug in all those components and it like works like it right, right? And yeah. it's a cartridge system still and it's a cartridge it system yeah this is this is definitely not an emulator the way that 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 little their their little devices is, is is cool i was disappointed when i first learned about it that it had sort of a limited game library which you can homebrew like you can modify it and yep. then put a more expanded library on it but of yep. course they don't want you to do that they don't they are protecting their intellectual property and enforcing their own copyrights, which are a big part of their business model. Um, and, you know, as someone who is um, curious curious and operating in the fringes of that, you know, it should be noted that, like, this, this console does not come with any games preloaded onto it. You need cartridges to play, whether those are modern manufactured cartridges, whether those are cartridges that you build yourself and that you put code onto, whether they're original games that were either licensed or not licensed. Well, wait, you um, just you just brought up a, a great point. A, a, you need a cartridge. You said that they don't come with games preloaded on them, but for the first 100 people who purchase a uh, tiny nes you're going to help out with that right yeah so so in the and this is kind of an interesting aside for the project is uh, you know a piece of hardware like this you you need to do some testing with and i don't have at least when i started i i had about five games um 
so I went on eBay and I bought a bulk lot of about a hundred bare PCBs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, in addition to some, some ROM loading cartridges so that I could ostensibly test any piece of code that I wanted, mm-hmm. but I wanted to test also, you know, car- different cartridges do have different hardware in them. Um, so I got all these little boards and to test with. And um, so far, every original game that we've tested with the hardware works. We haven't been able to test every single game, so I can't mm-hmm. guarantee that it works until we until we do that. So if um, you've got a rare cartridge out there. Yeah, let, I mean, it'll be interesting once more people have this mm-hmm. and are throwing more and more things at it to see how well it works. But mm-hmm. it's heartening that every original game that we've tried with it does work. But that said, you know, I don't need a hundred carts sitting around. And so um, since we have so many of them, the first hundred orders we're gonna, are going to come with a game. Mm-hmm. It'll be an original game. It will n- probably not be in its original case. It'll be in an aftermarket plastic case. Oh, really? Yeah, no, they look, they look cool because I think personally the transparent cases look kind of cool because mm-hmm. you can see how, mm-hmm. it, you know, most of the circuit boards for NES games are teeny tiny that was such an aesthetic in the mid 90s too of the like transparent yeah 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 yes, very yeah. 90s yeah yeah so we'll pre- so they have to be in well they don't have to be in something but but i want them to be in in cases um uh, we do have a bunch of original games so those will be sprinkled in there too but you will get some game <laughs> if you're one of the first entered people for free just and i think it's part bonus. of the nostalgia too of like actually like blowing off the cartridge and sticking it in <laughs> yeah <laughs> like that's that's definitely a memory that's embedded in a lot of our yep. history yep that's a good segue to act to an important point so a lot of people's memories with the nes involves a particular <laughs> situation of the of <laughs> the console not working of it blinking on and off and blowing on carts and putting them in the freezer and putting them on the stove and um, cleaning and and um, things that you probably shouldn't do to try to fix it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but you're desperate. You know, you're a kid, you really want to play games and you're like, oh God, the thing doesn't work. So that was a consequence of a very early form of DRM, which had to do with licensing. So Nintendo gave their little seal to companies that licensed the right to make and sell Nintendo games. And the way that they enforced this licensing was through a pair of chips. The, the console has one, and then the game has one. Those chips communicate. They're proprietary. If they sort of the little handshake goes okay, then the system boots. If the handshake doesn't go okay, then the little chip inside the system pulls a reset. And it, it essentially does this about once every second. So that's why your system would blink. On and it off. had nothing to do with the cat hair. It did well. It did have to do with the cat hair because the cat hair interfered with that little uh-huh. handshake. If there was any kind of glitch in those two chips communicating, one in the cart and one in the system, then it would just pull the reset line and it would just keep going. But it basically, DRM made the system less useful and effective. Yes, because the the design of the contacts between the game and the console itself was not perfect. So um, did you did you re-emulate this lockout chip on your reproduce device? This. No, no. So the so this doesn't have the lockout chip at all. So uh, and it doesn't need it, right? No, the game will still work totally fine if the handshake. The game doesn't really care about the handshake. It's the system that cares about the handshake. Right. In fact, the Famicom, like the Japanese one, didn't have it. Right. It, it was did just not. the U.S. one. Correct. It was only the U.S. ones that had this. So this, in some senses, is a little closer to Famicom. 
um, because it doesn't have the, the what they call the CIC lockout chip. It doesn't have one at all. So you'll never get the blinking, you know, if your contacts get bent, if a game is dirty, it may not function right. You need an electrical contact between those, mm -hmm. but it's not prone to this sort of delicate handshake. It also doesn't use the same kind of connector that the original Nintendos in America used, which was prone to deforming a little bit mm -hmm. and not making very good contact. But th this kind of problem actually still exists today because like on like a, we have a Nintendo Switch, right? And there like there was one point where we were having some internet connectivity issues and suddenly I couldn't play some of the games that I had, you know, paid for, right? On the device because it said, oh, I can't connect to the internet yep. to verify, right? So like this kind of pressure to favor, you know, kind of protectionism over functionality still exists in some way. Oh, hugely. I mean, mm -hmm. all over the place. Personally, I, I like to feel like I own the device that I'm using and that it's not undermining me. I mean, when I, I, when I first got a PlayStation, I think the first thing I ever soldered in my life was a mod chip so that, you know, it could play on licensed games. And there's a very long legal history of people selling these, people performing these modifications, whether it's legal or illegal for an end consumer to even install this in the first place. It's all really, really interesting. So in terms of Tiny NES, I absolutely don't want it to be limiting the user's freedom in any way. I do kind of want to talk a little bit about the ways that it's different from an original Nintendo. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the video amplifier is different. It uses a modern video amplifier. So it what does that mean? What is the video amplifier? One of the two original chips generates a signal that can talk to your television. This should create a cleaner video signal to a television than even an original system would. And part of that is because it's using a modern video amplifier as opposed to a single transistor. Mm -hmm. And there's some other there's some other nice features. One that's that's practical is that um, I don't know if you remember some of the games that asked you to hold down the reset button while turning the system off. Yeah, oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I'm not sure why. It's because if you just turned the power off, the CPU could get into sort of an unpredictable state. And if that happened while it was writing... Like it hadn't fully reset or something? Yeah, it just... It, if, you are, if you immediately pull power from a processor, some of, the, some of its outputs can be unpredictable. It can be garbage or it can be... So if it's in the middle of saving something, it might corrupt your save mm. data. And by holding down the reset button before turning the system off, it puts the processor into a known state before power is just removed from the system. So one of the differences in this particular system is that that's unnecessary because there's a limited amount of added power management. Mm. It's safe to turn off. It's going to put the processor into a known state. So it's kind of like a bug fix. You basically kind of, yeah. Bug, yeah, bug yeah, fix. yeah. Yep. So you started talking about like it's it can it doesn't have the lockout chip. Right. And the original device would, you know, try to prevent people from having these kind of aftermarket games. Yep. But since you don't have that, you said the compatibility is pretty broad. Like basically like all known cartridges, as far as you know, basically work, right? Yeah, there's there's one exception to that. And that is one of the modern cartridges that uses um, CF cards mm -hmm. doesn't doesn't work. And I've put in a significant amount of work trying to isolate exactly why. Um, What's the name of this game? Do you know? It is Power Pack. 
Mm. So it's it's kind of like the EverDrive, but instead of SD cards, it uses CF cards. Oh, okay. It's, I believe, FPGA-based, and it is not open source. Okay. So, it you know, working on compatibility with it, it's a, it's a modern, complicated piece of computing. Yeah. And it's a little bit like a black box. So if that's a project that anyone particularly wants to take on, I would certainly welcome it. And we'll do a, we'll do, we can do a revision of the main board to get compatibility well, that, with it. But it's the only thing that, that hasn't worked that we've thrown at it. Well, that's a perfect segue because you, what, one of the key things about this device is that by being open hardware, people can modify it. And yep. so there, there actually is at least one restriction that you have here, which is, uh, I, well, I think it can play both Japanese and U.S. games. Is that mm-hmm. right? There's still different kind of regional outputs for like the video type, I think. Right. So like NTSC versus PAL, what does that mean? Right. So you're only doing one of those. Which one is it? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and 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 there there actually were a few illicit sort of gray market, black market systems that did, that did support some, I think in Russia. I think that there's a Dendi model that supported both NTSC and PAL. But um, so in the days of analog video signals on televisions, there were different standards in different parts of the world. And because they have different timing requirements and they're, they're completely different analog signals, you know, you, you have to pick one more or less. And even the aftermarket machine I was talking about it, it dealt with this problem by essentially being two systems in one. So this is so this supports NTSC, which is the primary standard for the United States, for Japan, for some other regions around the world, and it will play NTSC games. Some cartridges were designed specifically to work with one region or the other, which is different pieces of hardware because they output very very different video signals. Right. So the key thing here is at the moment. Only supports NTSC, not PAL. Right. Since it's open hardware, someone could modify it to support PAL yep. in theory, right? And, uh, and, and they and it would work very similarly. It would require different internal chips mm-hmm. and some different internal clocks. And and you've said before, if you get enough sales of this, like if this becomes a big enough thing, maybe you'd be even interested in working on it and oh, yeah. manufacturing that. I don't think it would be terribly difficult to make a PAL version. It just needs to be done. It, it just needs to be done. I think that I think making a system that supported both would be really cool. Mm-hmm. Also, that would be a different scope because you would probably need two sets. Yeah. You probably need more. You know, mm-hmm. essentially, kind of make yeah. a dual system in one. Well, you've got um, space in there. There's some space. <laughs> you yeah. can do both. There's not a ton yeah. of space, but there's a little space. <laughs> As far as I'm aware, you're using two different chip types, and that some are original and some are clone. That's largely because of the availability of the original chips, right? Could you speak on what the difference between those two are? Yeah. So the 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 two integrated circuits that are at the heart of the original Nintendos and Famicoms and this project, they were manufactured by a company called Rico, R-I-C-O-H. And they are the RP2A03 as the CPU, which is a 6502-like processor with different pinout and some different hardware. And the PPU, which is the picture processing unit, it generates the analog video. Basically the GPU equivalent of today. Right, right. right. Yep. Yeah, they they called it a PPU, but yeah, GPU is the idea. Same idea. Um, And that is the RP2C02. For the for the NTSC ones, and those kind of operate as a pair. So those are the those are the NTSC chips. There's various revisions of them. They all mostly work. The the changes were minor, and they were all used in production. 
So at the time, as this was a very popular system, there were clones of these chips out there for unauthorized reproductions to be sold elsewhere in the world, where it either Nintendo wasn't on the market or people didn't want to go through licensing it. So a company called UMC cloned these chips and um, they are out there. So they're a little bit easier to source these days than the original Nintendo ones or the original you know, Rico ones that were made for Nintendo. But I've managed over the last few years to, to get quite a few because I knew that I was going to be making these and wanted mm-hmm. to, to sell them as part of a crowdfunding campaign. So I have quite a few of the genuine ones and I have quite a few of the, of the clone ones as well. So that's why there's two different rewards. So part of my understanding is also that like part of the reason that it's possible to keep getting these is because these chips are actually still used today for various kinds of electronics. Is that right? I mean, they're not that as far as I know, no one's manufacturing them. I, I may be wrong about that. There may be some fab somewhere that is that is making some version of these. I believe that what's out there is all either new old stock or it's things that have been pulled from mm-hmm. from, oh, from okay. systems. I thought we had some conversation at one point where we said, but maybe it was just we were just talking about the 6502 in general, that like people are still making new 6502 chips. Sure. Because like, cause like it's cheaper to keep making these new chips for like some kinds of electronics that have been around a long time yep. than to like just upgrade the existing whatever this company has to newer chips right keep using this 80s thing i don't want to i don't want to necessarily give the wrong information but i wouldn't be surprised if 6502s vanilla 6502s were still being were still available somehow okay or still being manufactured since these are pretty specialized that's that's my my understanding is probably wrong it was it's probably that these are like these are really were intended for that purpose they were people do people do experiment with them so particularly because the 2A03 had these audio um, features added to it, there's some interest in the synthesizer world and music generation world of using these. Similar things happen with the Sega system and some Mm. of the the audio capabilities of that. So that you Um, can make more authentic chip tunes? Yeah, essentially. There's properties that these chips have for audio that are desirable. Sometimes there are even glitches, right? Like this Commodore 64, people figured out how to make a, a an extra channel of percussion out of a glitch that the, the chip makes, right? Like a glitch noise. Well, what, one of the things that to me is so exciting about sort of retro computing, and this applies specifically to gaming and console gaming, is the degrees and lengths that developers would go to really push the hardware, to really get the most out of a very limited system. I mean, the... Tiny NES and the original Famicom and Nintendo had two two kilobyte bank of RAM. You know, two kilo, two kilobytes is nothing. That's that's a very very small. Very of RAM. few programs even start up in that size like, right. that are mm-hmm. tiny these days. Right. And the and as far as ROM, I mean, I think the original Super Mario Brothers fit into thirty two kilobytes of ROM. So I mean. There, there's very limited computing resources in terms of memory, in terms of clock cycles. And it's just incredible what the people who wrote these games were able to get out of it. And including capabilities that, that weren't designed into these chips. You know? that's, like mm-hmm. a, that's like actually like a packet 
in like I think it's like thirty two <laughs> kilobytes. Like the whole game of Super Mario probably fits into like a single internet packet. That's that's nuts. I mean, the race, and it's still this is still a race in the console world, is in terms of capability and speed and getting the most out of the hardware. And that was very very true in the eighties and nineties, if not more so. And so that's a fascination for me. I'm not the kind of programmer or developer who's going to be <laughs> who's going to be pushing that sort of envelope in terms of what can be cleverly gotten out in terms of software but it's something that i really appreciate especially with old systems like this the idea that all of these chips that you have are either old new stock or things that were ripped fits into our previous point about the preserving computing history right because Presumably with the chips that have been pulled, they were pulled out of hardware that was no longer functioning, but the chip was able to be salvaged and reused. So there will be a point when even this level of preserving the computing history won't be possible because the chips aren't being made anymore, but we're still kind of prolonging the life of these things. Yep. That's a good assessment of the situation. It makes me think of two different things. One is the fact that there is also preservation work that I mentioned a little bit before about digging into the, the underpinnings of both the 2A03 and, and 6502s in general on a silicon die gate level. Wow. So this project is not doing that, but it's really cool that that stuff is out there. Yeah. Um, and that is sort of the next level of preservation when it comes to the limitation of something that does rely on something that isn't being being manufactured anymore. Do you think um, do you think that fabbing is getting at the point where you can kind of ask for a custom run of those kind of chips when it's viable or it's moving in that direction. Really? The other thing that your question made me think of is something that is ongoing, which is a global shortage of of, chips, of, yeah. of, of integrated circuits, of modern integrated circuits. So for um, like everything that the modern world runs on. For cars, for computers for cell phones. cell phones for absolutely everything so um, for your appliances so for you the, know for the the toaster you didn't want to be smart but it's smart on the end. <laughs> yeah this is not a solved problem so mm-hmm. and it's something that i think the world is the at least the the supply chains and designers of anything electronic are are wrestling with in a way that hasn't really been, or at least to a degree that hasn't been a case in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And that'll have implications on things like this that depend on sort of one-off chips. But Mm -hmm. but to to your point, we are getting closer and closer to the point of being able to, as small companies or individuals, design silicon and have it manufactured and ordered. It's still very expensive and very involved, but you do see more and more of that happening. But to, to Morgan's point, you know, something that's kind of beautiful about this is that, you know, contrasting with like Nintendo's, you know, NES Classic that they released a bit ago and stuff like that, this actually does have like a reduce, reuse, recycle component to it, right? Yeah. Like we're keeping, we're, we don't necessarily have to generate the whole new thing. And if we start moving more and more towards open hardware things, we can like, we can repair the parts of things that are broken and keep pieces of things alive, right? Yep. These two core chips, the CPU and the PPU, are also socketed in this, as opposed to many pieces of hardware where the chips are are 
permanently soldered in. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly original <laughs> Nintendo boards. Which means you can um, pull it out and put another one in. You could pull it out and put it in. So what would be really cool is a open source or open hardware Ooh. CPU or PPU. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so if someone wants to do that, well, it, it would be compatible with the tiny NES. It would be a totally different, It would you know, a drop-in replacement for that would be a very, very different mm-hmm. engineering yeah um challenge but it would be it would be a cool one and it would be very cool to to take these out and to drop that in and then you'd have a a completely open hardware system well one of the things that i like about the free and open source software community is is you can make wish lists and say you know i really wish this existed and somewhere out there someone might be listening that is like hmm yeah i can do that yeah well I've, i've wondered myself if you know if a supplier like rochester has original wafers mm-hmm. sitting around of, of chips like this. And it'd be interesting to find out, but that, that doesn't really, that doesn't address it as, as interestingly as a drop in replacement from the ground up. Yeah. Well, some, something that kind of struck me both when looking at uh, Nova, this world, the open source GPL licensed game that we mentioned previously, Nova, if you listen to this thing, you're games are really cool and a huge inspiration to me. And uh, we would like to have you on the podcast. We would. There was a like a, a game jam not so long ago where somebody made they ported Robot Finds Kitten to the Commodore sixty four and they actually wrote a racket library to write six five zero two assembly on top of this Lisp dialect they had which was really cool and like and it really thinking about both of those made me think so there's been these things like that are called like fantasy consoles that have been made recently like Pico eight is a famous proprietary mm-hmm. one and then there's also Tick eighty and like. They're like kind of like retro futuristic visions of like here's a computer that you're going to try to target and make a thing for. But what's really cool is that in a certain sense, by being so influential, the original Nintendo Entertainment System and Famicom kind of became a fantasy console where like the tiny NES is like one implementation in hardware of that fantasy console. But so is like a video game emulator so that Nova the Squirrel can be written today and then you can play it on a physical console or you can play it on an emulator. And like, it's not only a fantasy console, it's like a reality console, but like it has all those properties of the nostalgic stuff that people are excited about, but like while preserving computing history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or, um, Micromages, which is a fantastic game. It's, um, I don't believe it's open source, but it is a modern as in the last couple years. It's proprietary, but it's incredible. It's a very good, yeah, it's a great game. And they, I think as part of their crowdfunding, they even sold physical cartridges. Mm. That's right. Which um, they had to take like physical copies of games that people didn't want uh, <laughs> and then like actually repurpose them to be able to make the micromages on there. You know, in, in the course of this conversation, it's making me think how, that it would be really cool to, to make hardware boards of Nova. Mm-hmm. I I think that would be great. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if Novo would be into that, but I think it would be amazing. If well, we had I mean, that's the the beauty of open source is that is that it can. Yeah, we would we technically you don't need to get Nova on board, but right. it would be great if Nova was on board. Oh, right? absolutely. Like, like that, yeah, that we'd want Nova to be on board, right. and it would be mm-hmm. great if she could be compensated. Well, and, and for that her work. that goes to sort of like the the philosophy that I have about open source hardware. Having started a business that created hardware based on existing open source designs it caused me to think a lot about what it means to use somebody else's work uh, commercially mm-hmm. and i know that this is you know this is a long running thing in the software world a little bit less 
recent in the hardware world, although open source hardware is is taking off in a really big way. Yeah. Especially with Risk V. Especially mm-hmm. with Risk V as a, as an architecture, as an open source architecture. So one of the things that that Talldog does with the with the synthesizer stuff that we do that is based on open source designs is we pay royalties, which it, it, it's royalty isn't quite the right word, donation isn't quite the right word either, but it's a combination mm-hmm. of a of a it's a voluntary it's voluntary it's com- compensation it's compensation yeah. it's sort of a voluntary royalty. It's like you're um, t- you're tipping. It's like a tip internally in my own accounting. It's treated as a royalty, but that's just sort of like an internal bookkeeping method. But but I think but, the, the point is, is that people get this impression that unless if you are legally forced to do it, uh, to, to compensate people, people won't. But here you are saying, well, I still feel like ethically I should support this person because I'm building on their work. Yep. And that's really, I feel like that's really inspiring that yeah. Tall Dog does that. Well, it yeah. I mean, like you said, it, it, it feels like it fits with my ethics. And I just believe that if I'm using somebody else's work to make money, that they deserve mm-hmm. some payment for that work. Again, that's completely separate from the idea of open source, which sort of builds in the fact that this is not a legal requirement for use. It is completely voluntary. So I, you know, I've had upstream creators be thrilled to accept the donations royalties i've had people who you know either don't reply or there's there's silence or they don't want to accept it directly and they want donations to be made instead and i think those are all really interesting valid ways of going about this i am hopeful that we could have a capitalist system that works sort of outside the legal requirements of royalty payments and licensing of ideas mm-hmm. you can you can support somebody without a gun being pointed at your head right yeah. and i think i think i don't i don't i'm not going to speak for other people but for me personally i would rather support somebody because i don't have to like it's mm-hmm. it's because they have decided to make something open source it makes me more willing and more eager to compensate them it's like a pay it forward situation as opposed to an obligation right so if somebody does use tiny nes stuff in a product i would be absolutely thrilled if they paid me a royalty (laughs) but they're absolutely not legally required to do so that is Mm -hmm. the spirit of how open source works you know i'm gonna be thrilled if people you know use it anyway but it's not something that's expected but that's the whole point yeah. And Tall Dog has an official statement on the open source policy, right? Yeah. Which we yeah. could link in the show notes. Yep. Yep. So that's a visible thing that's stated in writing, yep. which is cool. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, and that's that's been revised a little bit over the years, but it felt important to me to have that in sort of a hard copy mm-hmm. and also for other people to look at to sort of yeah. sort of know what we're doing. And it's transparency in your business practices as relates to community-based development in open source more broadly. Yep. There's a a lot of cloning in the world. Mm -hmm. In many ways, building open source hardware that is based on other people's work is in some ways cloning. And there's some ways that TinyNES is cloning um, hardware that's out there. The idea of cloning, inspiration, reuse... These are all like interconnected things. And I think that in general, my gut is not 
totally satisfied with the, I'm going to take this idea, clone it and sell it when it's not combined with sort of an acknowledgement of the licensing, the work that's gone into it, the dynamic of power at play, you know, is this work that was created by a multinational corporation 40 plus years ago? Mm -hmm. Is this work that was created by an individual who has to pay rent and buy food? It's something that I think a lot about and I don't have a, I don't have a one size fits all answer to. Mm -hmm. It's not 40 plus years yet. Not that old. Uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm well. I'm sure. I'm sure the development of the NES was happening over forty years ago. Maybe, but we're getting close to the fortieth anniversary of, of its release. Scary. I know, but none of us want to believe it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Those of close. us who that's are roughly getting, the same close, age as Nintendo, yeah, that's getting close <laughs> to the fortieth anniversary of my release. So I don't like yeah, to right? believe that that is the case. <laughs> not both. Um, Let's get down to some brass tacks about the system. Yeah. So, one, uh, we talked about the fact that it's still a cartridge game. So, first 100 will get a cartridge with Mm -hmm. their purchase. We talked about the chips inside of it. If we're thinking about other things that are needed, what about controllers? Great question. So, this it it has ports that work with original NES controllers, if you have them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of aftermarket ones out there. Aftermarket wired ones that are available now don't, I personally wasn't satisfied with the reliability. There there was a lot of. <laughs> the wireless ones are better for the aftermarket. The, there's, there's, there's all degrees. There's all degrees of quality. So there's a company called 8BitDo that makes sort of retro style controllers, modern ones. And I was really impressed by them. I found like a, one that seems like a, a really good fit. Mm-hmm. It's 2.4 gigahertz wireless. It comes with its own little base station, which it, which just plugs right into the controller port. And it works really well. It's it's well engineered. They make really nice hardware. So but you, you can use your originals if you have them. Oh, yeah, totally. Yep. Anything that plugs into a, a you know, a Nintendo port will work. Mm-hmm. So we're selling them for 25 bucks. The controllers. The controllers. Not the shiny NES. No, no, no. Full disclosure... We mentioned several episodes ago that Christine and I, as Foss and Craft Studios LLC, had our first client, but we couldn't announce what it was yet. And now we can. Right. Our so... first client is Dan to <laughs> help promote the uh, tiny NES for right. the crowd supply. It's mostly Morgan doing most of the work on this because <laughs> uh, I'm very busy with the sprightly stuff. But I, I did help in one way. Should we should we actually just play it? So actually, this is not used on the Crowd Supply video, sadly. They asked us for a script, so we wrote a script, and then they were like, "Oh no, we weren't looking for something that developed." And then and then I and then I put this together. Well, let's just play it. Introducing the Tiny Nostalgia Evocation Square, or Tiny NES for short. The Tiny NES is not an emulator or an FPGA-based system. It utilizes an original 6502-based CPU paired with an original graphics chip, both installed on an open hardware circuit board. This means it works just like the original Nintendo Entertainment System, except this one is open hardware. The modern, minimal, and beautiful Tiny NES enclosure is open hardware too. The Tiny NES console is compatible with original Nintendo Entertainment System cartridges. Just pop one in, power it on, and get ready to invoke some proper nostalgia. And using an adapter, you can play the original Famicom Game System cartridges too. 
Our controller ports are compatible with original Nintendo Entertainment System controllers and third-party alternatives, including several modern wireless options. The Tiny NES model outputs NTSC video and is compatible with North American games only. With enough support for this run, we hope to be able to provide a PAL version in the future. And hey, Tiny NES is open hardware, so if you're excited to hack the design for other regions, go wild! You've got the freedom to extend and experiment. But why did we make the Tiny NES? The primary reason is simply that it's fun! Dust off the cartridges from your attic and relive the experiences you had as a kid. Tiny NES also acts as a means of preserving computing history. As systems age, hardware eventually breaks or malfunctions, but by creating open hardware alternatives, we can preserve this technology indefinitely. Two types of core chips are available, genuine chips and clone chips. Genuine chips were manufactured by Ryko for Nintendo, and these provide the best compatibility, but they're also more expensive. Clone chips were manufactured by UMC and have good, but not perfect, compatibility. However, they're significantly cheaper and more genuinely available. Due to a limited supply of genuine chips, only 300 sets of them are available. The original Nintendo Entertainment System sold for $89.99 in 1987. After adjusting for inflation, that would equal about $219 today, but we're selling the Tiny NES for only $199. That's like a $20 discount for time traveling into the future and getting the open hardware version. Save even more by going with the clone chip version, which is only $179. We're also offering an option of modern, high-quality wireless controllers. Don't forget to add one or two of these to your order so you and your friends can jump right in and battle it out 8-bit style. But that's not all. The first 100 orders of Tiny NES systems with genuine chips will ship with a bonus, randomly selected game cartridge. All of these are original game circuit boards, which are housed in a beautiful, brand-new, semi-transparent plastic case. Don't wait! Order now! The tiny Nostalgia Evocation Square, preserving computer history through open source hardware and making it fun, too. Okay, we're back. And, uh, um, well, okay, maybe we'll use it for something later. It was at least fun because I got to, I got to practice a much more femme voice, even if it sounds very much like it's supposed to be, like, a very 90, a very 90s infomercial type voice, yeah. right? You know, but, it's, a, it's a very Vanna White doing, doing a late night infomercial that's yeah. right and I, i've complained before on this podcast that i need to work on my voice a lot more and i don't plan on speaking like vanna white all the time but i you know it was a nice practice experience as we just heard in the commercial you are time traveling into the future to get a cheaper open hardware version of this very same kind of you know well it's not the same product but it's the same category of products fulfills the same needs right, right. Mm -hmm. and to get the open hardware version even and uh, you know like and, and inflation adjusted it's even you know like it, that's pretty incredible yeah right um so i think well, I, I remember a number of years ago seeing the the analog nt come out and i was you know that's a, that's kind of an inspiration for this it's a very similar idea it wasn't open source but it was i believe over 400 dollars when it was released so it was a you know it was a very expensive mm -hmm. product like i said i i what i really like doing is hardware design and design for manufacturing and both usability and appearance. And, you know, the whole thing is sort of a product design project. And so part of what that was, was, was keeping it minimal and affordable. 
Okay, so now I come in with the infomercial <laughs> thing again. <laughs> Audience of Fossing Crafts, order today to get the cheaper inflation-adjusted open hardware, tiny nostalgia evocation square of your very own <laughs> support computing history. Oh my gosh, right? You know, and have fun doing it too. Yeah, that's great. But th- this is also a limited campaign in the sense that. There's only so many chips that we have. Yeah. Um, the original ones are harder to get. Mm-hmm. So there's there's about 300 sets. Beyond what we have will depend on the the ability to source more yeah. of those chips. This isn't this isn't an artificial scarcity thing. This is an actual scarcity. <laughs> yeah. Actual scarcity or <laughs> today yeah. because these are chips that are as old as most of us in this yeah. room are. Yeah. So. And, and and probably and, older than most of our audience some of them are new old stock some of them are pulled from boards mm-hmm. um i pulled some myself from boards i also worked with a local assembler to yeah. do some disassembly and that's that's you know it's interesting to see more and more companies doing that these days like it didn't used to be profitable at all to pull chips off old boards but with a chip shortage then exactly chip recycling I mean, it's something that logically we should have been doing all along, but... It's all, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's an economic decision. Mm -hmm. In the current environment, it sometimes makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So, we like to end our interviews with the same question, which is, what are you crafting? Ah, that's a good question. Well, I should say, last week, at my request, Morgan taught me how to crochet. um, And Dan is... Dan is just jumping in feet first into the deep end. <laughs> like, I'm like, do we want to make, like, some pot holders or a scarf? And Dan's like, nah, I have this pattern. And yeah, Dan no, is... I, I I found a hyena that I really like. It's an adorable hyena. It's an adorable hyena. It was on Etsy. And, yeah, I'm just like, I don't care if this is advanced. It's 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 not it's not super easy, but it is really satisfying to do. So yeah. thank so, you, thank you for teaching me. It's it's very, it's very relaxing. Um, oh, I'm glad you're enjoying it. And we did um, do yeah. some tiny rectangles first. They were we not <laughs> well. They were nostalgia evoking. No, me, they didn't. Evoke but they were not <laughs> nostalgia evoking for you. And they were rectangles, not squares. But um, so we did we did some small rectangles first to get, you know, like the different stitches and yeah. stuff like that. And then Dan just jumped straight into this pattern and is doing great on it. Uh, and you know what? This is something we actually didn't mention. There's actually another nice craft aspect to the tiny, uh, the nostalgia evocation square, mm. which is that the square looks really nice. Mm. It does. Like it's like a, a it's really got nice, a nice but functional design. Nice, but functional. And it feels very clean. Mm. Right. And, and I think that's really cool. Thanks. I, I do really like the idea of circuit boards as artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the things that I like about doing circuit board design and layout. Mm-hmm. And it's also with, you know, something that's happened over the past decade is it's very, very easy and inexpensive to order circuit boards manufactured to your specs. And by inexpensive, I mean, in some cases, free, mm-hmm. ranging from free to $5, $10 at the low end. With a turnaround of, you know, weeks, not months or years Mm -hmm. in relatively small quantities. So this is one of, I think, the most versatile, inexpensive fabrication techniques that's available to anybody out there, especially artists, Mm -hmm. because you can vary within the constraints of what a circuit board is and what it's made out of 
thickness, colors, copper, the transparency or translucency of the material, holes, cutouts, shapes. You know, this is a really good craft resource mm-hmm. for people that has historically really only been used for what its initial yeah. <laughs> purpose is, which is circuit boards. But um, there is a long history of using circuit board techniques to, to make enclosures. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of uh, inspired by that, but in a more sort of modern, not do it yourself, but but actually having boards mm-hmm. professionally fabricated means. But, you know, I love all the visual aspects that you can work into circuit board manufacturing. Yeah. And that's why this project has a fair number of those elements, because I just think it's awesome. And I'd love to see more artists, mm-hmm. you know, either either picking up what they have access to in terms of software or picking up KiCad, which is an awesome open source platform for generating circuit boards, uh, for designing circuit boards. And even if they don't involve circuits, using them as part of a crafting or modeling or lighting design, all sorts of avenues I think are possible. And the enclosure for the tiny NES is also very nicely designed. Thank you. Thanks. So, so... Well, do you have anything else you're crafting that you want to talk about before... Christine, so. Oh boy. I mean, I feel in some ways, I feel like my whole life is crafting. Uh, you know, a lot of that is sort of work related in mm-hmm. terms of other new products, mostly in the synthesizer world. But. Well, maybe we should have you on to talk about synthesizers in open <laughs> hardware at some point, too. I could, but, yeah. But... Yeah. Actually, that, that would be a good, maybe because um, a mutual friend of ours and. I are working on a project with a, with a larger scope. Oh, and right. I'm tangentially yeah. working on are, that yep. project too. So we could do an episode with right. when that when all that's done. I okay. think I think that's 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 going to be a while in the future. But yeah. that is a product and a Wait. design that is very open source relevant. So. Mm-hmm. We 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 know this is a bad habit. We do this on the show all the time. We say not gonna preview future episodes but you just got your preview but now (laughs) now okay sorry dan time start wrapping up so uh you thank you dan for coming on the show first of all um and and also one of the things about uh, about this episode right is we're encouraging you to join the tiny nostalgia evocation square crowdfunding campaign support the project you're both getting something fun for mm-hmm. yourself and you're supporting the project. And since you're a client, we're also oh, you're supporting, also Foss- supporting Foss and Craft Studios, LLC. That's right. And we said last time that we are going to start thanking people who have donated to the show. So if you donate to the Patreon, you are both supporting my work on Sprightly and you're supporting this podcast, you know, and you can show up in the terminal phase credits, which is a space shooter thing. Mm-hmm. But also... To thank the people who have donated here, first of all, thank you to our supporters, Loadhost, Metabolist, Drew Fustini of OSH Park, Forest Friendly, Ryan Atkinson, Nick and LP, Mike Swierzek, and Coda. Thank you to our Tier 2 Mega supporters, Eric Schultz, Shay Arison, and Lotus Echo. And now, for our Tier 3 Ultra supporters... Thank you to Esteban Ordano and Jeff Smith. Uh, And in future episodes, 
there's plenty of other people to thank still. We're going to be going through it chunk by chunk so you don't hear it all at once. Uh, if you want to hear us thank you and possibly mispronounce your name live on the air, but in a very gracious and grateful way, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash Crafts. And if, like Dan, you are interested in hiring us to do some contracting related to free and open source software or hardware or campaigns or production of podcasts, something like that, we're available as Fawson Craft Studios, so feel free to get a hold of us in the methods that are about um, to be listed at the end of this show. In our outro, yes. And that is it for this episode. All right, thanks. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Chris Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Chris Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community in hash fossandcrafts at irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash fossandcrafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. I'm thinking too much about how my mouth about works. <laughs> not used, I'm not used to being interviewed, so bear with me. Okay. Don't Let's... think about how your mouth works too much. It actually makes it worse. Don't tell worth... people not to think <laughs> about that because then worth... they'll think about it. It doesn't worth it well when you, when you think about it. All right, go ahead. Do not make this worse. I just want to point out that if I look up, I'm seeing... Something that sort of looks like English, but isn't written on a big whiteboard in front of me. Oh, that's so. great. That's and Lodge. Lodge. That's Lodge Band. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dan is looking at Lodge Band, which I have deconstructed into Lisp yeah. on a whiteboard. But that's not relevant to this podcast. Well, Maybe a different episode. It does make speaking English a little bit more difficult. Would you like us to move that? <laughs> no, no, no. Forward? It's nice. It's delightful. Um, okay. It's good. Yeah. Uh, actually, we don't have you it written. Have it written it's over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We, I mean, we said it on the show. The I just said it on the thing. So actually, you heard the price. Um, maybe we don't need to do this. Maybe, maybe we don't we need can to just do cut it out. So it was in yeah. the commercial. So as you heard That's in the commercial, I am the founder of Tall Dog. Uh, I started to say Tall Dog Productions because of you. Thank you. <laughs> you made him forget his own company name. All right, now we're getting to the point where I will ask the question. So <laughs> now we are approaching the time where questions shall be asked. Okay, this is, like a construct, this is like constructing a Lodge Band sentence yeah. right here. Sorry, I, I started thinking in my own head about where this was going, and I kind of lost my train of thought. You usually okay. want to think in your own head. That's the right pl- place Can to I think. think in your head, though? That would no. be really nice. Okay. You don't want to be in other people's heads. Especially not mine. A lot of times I don't want to be in my own head. 
Yeah. So the first 100 orders of the Tiny and the Ass with you the original chip. You get to do chips. that later. <laughs> Sorry. As, as if that wasn't going to be disruptive. No, it was great. It was great. Um, I don't do anything. I dramatically eat a Hershey's kiss. Uh, so, Dan. Well... <laughs> So, Dan, we're making it very hard for Future Morgan. Future Morgan, I'm sorry for editing this episode. Me too. 